Wyndham Hotels and Resorts makes travel possible for all. Whether it's the long haulers looking for a great cup of coffee, a roomier rest for the on-a-wim road trippers, or a place to make summer memories with the whole family. No matter who you are, where you're going, or why, with 24 trusted brands to choose from like La Quinta, Days Inn, and Super 8, your Wyndham is waiting. Get the lowest price at WyndhamHotels.com. Restrictions apply. Visit website for more details. It's difficult to gain worldwide acclaim as the man who could not be hanged, but John Lee did it. Lee was found guilty of stabbing a young woman to death and sentenced to die by hanging. On the morning of February 23, 1885, a Monday, Lee was led atop the gallows scaffolding at the prison in Exeter, England. A noose was placed around his neck, and he was asked if he had any last words. No. Drop away, he said. And with that, the executioner pulled the bolt that released the trap door, and nothing happened. The door didn't budge. Lee hadn't dropped to his death. Attendants stomped on the door, and it still remained closed. Lee was moved aside. The door was fixed. They had Lee step upon it a second time. The door was released, and nothing. A third time, and again, nothing happened. A chaplain stepped up to Lee and declared, Under the laws of England, they can't put you on the scaffold again. Lee was taken back to his cell. He became known as the man who could not be hanged. It was a story that eventually reached the halls of the New York State Legislature, where they were searching for a more dependable, efficient, and humane way to execute its criminals than hangings. New York Governor David Hill established a commission to assess a new method of execution, and they reported that the most potent agent known for the destruction of human life is electricity, which paralyzed the brain so quickly, nerves in the body could not convey a sense of shock or pain. In June 1888, death by electricity was made the official method of execution in New York. Death chambers were built at the prisons in Dannemora, Auburn, and Sing Sing. Between 1888 and 1965, New York State had the death penalty, and in that time, five men from in and around Syracuse, New York, were executed for their crimes in the electric chair. This is the story of one of them. Franklin Jenner, 21, a vagabond lumberjack and farmhand who was desperate to start a new life. All he needed was money, and he would do anything to get it. I'm Sunny Hernandez. And I'm Josh McDonald. This is The Condemned. The stories of five men with different paths who arrived at the same destination, the electric chair. Here is our next story. The district attorney in Syracuse, New York, called the disappearance and murder of Mrs. Florence Ames the most gruesome and most ferocious crime in the history of Onondaga County. It was certainly one of the most peculiar. Her last day on earth began on December 14, 1938, with a freak early season snowstorm that plunged the city into an arctic pocket. Central New Yorkers dug out from an 11-inch snowfall, and temperatures plummeted into the teens. Syracuse, of course, is no stranger to winter weather, but the suddenness of the storm in the eerie skies plunged the city into darkness. With nothing like the sophisticated weather alert systems of today, the weird phenomenon of a suddenly darkened city at noontime frightened some residents. Newspapers said that there were several calls to their offices from temporarily alarmed people who panicked under the black midday skies. Some of the more superstitious jumped to the conclusion that the world was ending. 
Surely the weather had something to do with what had happened to Mrs. Florence Ames when her son called Syracuse police to report that his 53-year-old mother had gone missing from her home at 116 Stedman Street. It was the only thing that made sense. Sylvia Ames had just finished her shift at the Krauss Heinz factory and returned to her home on Stedman Street that she shared with her mother, Florence. She sensed something odd, out of place. Her mother wasn't at home, yet the electric iron was on. Her mother's eyeglasses were there, but her winter coat was gone. Had her mother simply gone on a quick errand? But hours passed, and Sylvia had seen no sign of her mother, and Florence Ames was simply not the type of person to vanish. When Florence's son, Millard Jr., who also lived in the Stedman Street House, returned home from his job, Sylvia filled him in. She asked him to call police. By all accounts, Florence was happy. The Herald said she was contented with home life and was respected and liked among her small circle of friends. Her mental condition appeared excellent. She had been born in 1885 in Michigan and moved to Syracuse with her parents when she was 15. Two years later, she graduated from Syracuse High School. She married, but the couple would eventually separate. She worked as a bookkeeper. Her last employer had been the Syracuse Paving Company, where she worked for three years before leaving in March 1937. Mrs. Harriet Fuzzard lived in an apartment inside the Ames home. She told police that she had heard Florence moving around the house all morning on the day she disappeared. At 11.30 a.m., she heard Ames enter the back porch, probably to retrieve her ironing board, which she kept there. Fuzzard told police that after about 1 p.m., she no longer heard anything from Ames. Roughly about the same time the storm tore through Syracuse. The next day, Thursday, December 15, 1938, Syracuse police alerted officers to be on the lookout for the missing woman. She was described as 5 foot 4, 135 pounds. She had a dark complexion, brown eyes and brown hair touched with gray. She was believed to be wearing a dark brown coat with a brown fur collar, a rust-colored hat, brown overshoes over a yellow house dress. Police figured that Florence panicked during the storm and ran out of her house into the whiteout and became lost or injured. They combed the area near the Ames home, concentrating on a steep embankment that fell away from Stedman Street. They found nothing. Detectives questioned people living around nearby Onondaga Lake and Lay Creek, but, again, they found nothing. Sixty Boy Scouts, directed by Millard, Florence's son and scout leader, searched the area after school for days. Nothing. Police interviewed relatives. They canvassed hospitals and travel agencies. They could find no answers. As 1939 began, the Ames children had almost given up hope of learning what had happened to their mother. They had left their mother's house and moved in with a nearby aunt on Turtle Street. Then police caught a break. A Stedman Street neighbor reported a wretched smell coming from his attic. Anthony Laurie lived in a tidy, cream-colored house next door to the Florence Ames house on Stedman Street. He was 45 and worked as a timekeeper at the repair shop at the Onondaga County Highway Department. He was a World War I veteran and lived with his two children, Richard and Betty. He and his wife were separated. Police interviewed him shortly after Ames disappeared, but he had little to offer. He had been at work all day, he said. His colleagues vouched for him. Then, in January, a mysterious stain appeared on the ceiling over a stair landing inside the lorry home. He later noticed a stink. Perhaps it was a bucket of roofing compound tipped over in the attic, he thought. Or maybe an animal had snuck in 
had become trapped and died. Maybe it was a leaky roof. To find out whatever was in the attic was going to be a hassle. A small trap door in the ceiling was the only way in, and he needed a ladder to reach it. He figured the stink would fade. He did nothing. Finally, on February 16, 1939, he couldn't take the smell any longer. He called Syracuse Police Chief William Rapp and said he was sure the odor was coming from a dead body. He was a veteran, he said, and he knew what a dead body smelled like. Police arrived and climbed a ladder into the attic. And that's when, after two months, the search for Florence Ames ended. She was found half-decomposed in an attic just 50 feet from her own front door. The body was slumped against the sloping roof of Lori's home. It was partially hidden behind some old window screens and a stovepipe. There was a rope around the corpse's neck. The body was badly decomposed. Ames's son could only identify his mother by the general contour of her face, her coat, house dress, and shoes. Florence Ames's death certificate said she died from homicidal contusions of the head, with strangulation as a possible contributory cause. A few days later, she was laid to rest at Oakwood Cemetery after a short service. Her pallbearers were six of the Boy Scouts who had searched through the snowdrifts and shorelines after she disappeared. Police held Anthony Laurie as a material witness, but it was obvious he had nothing to do with the killing. His alibi was solid, and despite the delay, he had pointed police to the body. On the day after the body was discovered, police caught a second break when a Syracuse attorney, Benjamin Morris, turned over a letter that had been delivered to his home. It was addressed to his former maid, Lucienne Martin, but she wasn't there. Martin had quit without a word in mid-December. Now, a letter arrived from Buffalo addressed to Martin from the man she introduced to Morris as her husband, Franklin Jenner. The letter said he was hiding in Maine. A quick investigation by police had discovered that Jenner and Martin had been tenants at Lori's house, beginning around Thanksgiving. Detectives questioned Lori about Jenner. He said he moved out the same day that Ames had gone missing. Why had he not mentioned that to police at the very beginning? He told detectives he had never been interviewed, and besides, he would not have mentioned Jenner because he saw no connection between the two cases. Jenner worked as a lumberjack and farmhand. Lori said Jenner had been talking of leaving for a week and was behind on his rent, so he wasn't surprised when Jenner vanished without a word. Why didn't Lori ask police for help getting his rent money? I didn't see any use to it. I knew he was broke, he said. Syracuse police now had a suspect in Jenner. They just had to find him. Who was Franklin Willard Jenner? His past was cloudy. He was about 21 years old, maybe 20. No one really knew for sure. He was born in Groton, Vermont, and his mother died when he was 11. He was around 5 foot 10, 160 pounds, was said to have a powerful build and have large, strong hands. He never stayed in one place for long. He had worked and lived in a variety of towns in Vermont, New Hampshire, and upstate New York. As a boy, he had been arrested for stealing a car and was sent to a detention facility. He ran away from it. In 1937, he served time in Vermont for petty larceny. He was always short of money. When he lived at the Lowry House, all he had was a red sweater, an old pair of trousers, a pair of shoes, and a brown suit. He carried everything he owned in a small wooden box. Syracuse police knew Jenner liked working in lumber camps, so they sent cables to them across northern New York and into New England. He was said to be traveling with a woman, Lucienne Martin. An eight-state manhunt began for the couple. Police focused on Vermont and New Hampshire, 
were Jenner and Martinhead family. On Saturday, February 18, 1939, the search brought police to a farm in West Newbury, Vermont. They found Martin inside the farmhouse. They arrested Jenner while he was milking a cow in a barn. Martin said she knew nothing of Ames' killing. Jenner vouched for her, saying she had worked all day at the Morris home. During a long car ride back to Syracuse, Jenner confessed to police chief William Rapp. Jenner was charged with first-degree murder, which carried the death penalty. Then Jenner spilled the rest of the beans. He said he wanted to leave town and start fresh with Lucienne, but he was broke. He figured Florence Ames had some money, considering that she lived with two adults who each worked full-time jobs. He plotted his crime for over a week, often carrying the piece of rope in his pocket. He waited for an opportunity. Then, on December 14, 1938, the freak winter storm hit. Jenner ran next door to the Ames home. He said he was watching his landlord's children and they were frightened by the dark and wind. Lori's children needed her, he pleaded. She agreed to help. As she walked into the Lori home, Jenner hit her over the head with a chair. He beat her. She had fallen to the floor, but she was still breathing. He used the rope to strangle her. Jenner rushed over to the Ames home looking for cash. He found some, a total of $2.35 in her purse. He admitted later that he didn't search the house too good. He went back to the Lori home, tied the rope around her neck, and used it to hoist her body into the attic. He cleaned up the blood, gathered up his meager belongings, and skipped town. A taxi ride to the bus station cost him 35 cents. A Greyhound ticket to Rochester cost $1.45. His profit from killing Florence Ames? 55 cents. On February 21, 1939, Syracuse saw the face of their latest killer, and it was a chilling one. On the ride from Vermont to Syracuse, police transporting Jenner stopped at the jail at Amsterdam, New York for the night. A reporter from the Syracuse Herald met them there. He peppered Jenner with questions. Inside the shadowed threshold, a lithe figure stripped now of the bulky coat and rid of the hampering steel handcuffs paced the narrow stone and steel cell, the reporter wrote. Jenner remained silent, only responding when he was asked if he had planted the body of Ames to frame Anthony Laurie. He said he did not. Then he was asked why he did it. Jenner flashed his two giant hands to the reporter, hands that the newsman thought were large enough to choke a woman with one of them, then lifted them to his head as if he was trying to wrestle out some answer to that dread question. Photographer's cameras clicked. The next day, the photograph of the accused killer's strong hands which were said to have strangled the life out of Mrs. Ames was on the front page. Jenner made it clear that his girlfriend, Lucienne Martin, was not involved in the murder. Martin also wanted that made perfectly clear. She said in a statement, Frank told me he was sick of hanging around. He asked me if I got any money from home. I said no. He said he was going away to get work somewhere. I never knew any of all they tell me now or I would not be with him. Jenner's trial began on April 26, 1939. Jenner, penniless, was appointed defense attorney Richard Byrne. Leading the prosecution was District Attorney Donald Mahoney. With Jenner already confessing to the crime, the trial appeared relatively straightforward. Jenner, it was believed, was to plead not guilty by reason of insanity. But then the defense threw a curveball and came up with a different strategy. Jenner appeared at the first day of the trial looking like a completely new man. Gone was the rough clothing and appearance of a New England lumberjack, replaced by a spit and polished member of society. He appeared in a new brown suit with a white shirt, 
shiny black shoes, and white socks. His hair was combed back neatly in a pompadour style. Jenner displayed little emotion during the trial, often sitting inattentively. He had a single familiar face in his corner during the proceedings. His father, Charles, appeared often at the trial. Prosecutors read Jenner's confession to the jury, including this damning conversation with the police. Did you know that you had committed a crime? I knew I had committed murder, was Jenner's answer. Jenner was telling a different story when he took the stand in his own defense. The whole thing was an accident. He was desperate to get back to New England where he knew he could find work, but with no money, he decided to rob Mrs. Ames. He admitted that he lured Florence Ames to the Lorry house that day with the purpose of robbing her, not killing her. After she entered the house, she made a movement toward the telephone. When Jenner panicked and pushed her away from it, Ames lost her balance and struck her head against the stairs, killing her. He did not hit her with a chair, did not assault her, or strangle her, he said. Still scared for his life, Jenner hid her body, then fled the scene, heading toward western New York, before doubling back to the lumber camps of New England. His face was said to be pale as he testified. He spoke so softly, jurors repeatedly asked him to speak up. Frequently, he scraped the floor gently with the sole of his left shoe, and his gaze was directed downward most of the time, a reporter wrote. He admitted that he had only confessed after detectives convinced him that no one in Syracuse would believe his story. In his summing up, Jenner's attorney, Richard Byrne, asked jurors to listen to the man on the stand and not the one who had confessed to be a murderer. If you convict him, you will have to do so on his own words. No one knows and no one will ever know the exact cause of death, Byrne said. Byrne went on to blame society and the loss of his mother for what Franklin Jenner had become. If not for the unfortunate loss of his mother when he was a boy, he would not be here today. If the state had spent on this unfortunate boy a fraction of what it has spent on an attempt to burn him, he wouldn't be here now. Jenner told a Herald reporter, Whatever the verdict is, I will accept it. Of course, I hope for acquittal or conviction for a lesser crime, but if I'm found guilty of first-degree murder, I'll take that just as I would acquittal. I wouldn't want to go through this trial again. It took the jury just two hours and 38 minutes to convict Jenner on April 30, 1939. He was the eighth person in Onondaga County history to be convicted of first-degree murder. Throughout the trial, Jenner showed little emotion at the announcement of the verdict, although he did say later he would like to have a half hour alone with the jury. Four days later at his sentencing, Jenner was just as brash. I don't give a damn if I go to the chair, he told the deputy as he swaggered into the courtroom. Earlier, he said that those newspaper boys ought to give me a carton of cigarettes. I've let them take plenty of pictures. After a four-minute hearing in which he was sentenced to death in the electric chair at Sing Sing Prison, a reporter gave him some as he entered an elevator. Jenner's boisterous attitude continued in the days that followed, begging for cigarettes from reporters and joking up until the moment he got onto the train. While waiting for the train, a police officer went through an envelope of Jenner's possessions, pulling out a pair of earmuffs. I won't be needing them where I'm going, he said, bursting out laughing at his own joke. He was known as the loneliest inmate in the death house. No one wrote to him at Sing Sing. He had just one visitor, his sister Alice from Fabius, New York, who visited briefly the day before his death. Deputies said that neither brother or sister displayed any emotion during the visit, and neither wept. Jenner said afterward, I feel better now. I might as well make up my mind. I've got to go. Jenner's final meal was fried shrimp. Before someone was executed in an electric chair, 
a certain amount of preparation was required. The prisoner's head was shaved along with hairs just above the calf on either leg. This permits better contact between the skin and the electrodes which must be attached to the body. An electrode placed above a sponge, damp with brine, is strapped on the prisoner's leg by the electrician. Then, a leather helmet containing another electrode and sponge is placed on the condemned's head and a cable is connected. During an electrocution, the human body may heat up to approximately 210 degrees Fahrenheit, which causes severe damage to internal organs and often a person's eyeballs would melt. For this reason, a black leather mask is put on the prisoner's face and pulled tight, with the electrician buckling it around the back of the chair. Once they were strapped in, at least two jolts of an electrical current were applied for several minutes. An initial voltage of about 2,000 volts stops the heart and induces unconsciousness. The electrician watches the dials, bringing the current up, then down, then up again. Frank Jenner would be joined in death on February 15th by John Kulka and Bertel Thingstead, a pair of New York City gunmen convicted of killing a city patrolman during a Manhattan nightclub holdup ten months before. The order of execution was decided alphabetically by their last names. Jenner would be the first to die. Jenner walked steady and alert from his cell to the death chamber. He made no public protest or statement. He did not have any familiar faces among the witnesses. A recent convert to Catholicism, he was accompanied by Reverend John McCaffrey. As he entered the death chamber, his eyes coolly swept over the witnesses, and he took his seat and submitted to the fastening of the straps, as if he was interested in seeing it done right, the Herald reported. Four minutes later, he died, alone. In just 17 minutes, all of the executions that night were complete. Jenner was the last man from Onondaga County to be executed in the electric chair and the 956th overall in New York State. When it was over, Jenner's attorney Richard Byrne lashed out at the state and the system for his client's fate. His mother died when he was a little fellow and he never had a chance to get the right ethical and moral viewpoint. He just knocked around on his own with no proper care. Forgotten by his friends and family, the body of the loneliest man at Sing Sing was never claimed. He was buried alone. This concludes the story of Frank Jenner. Next time on The Condemned, we learn about Alfred Ulysses Gialorenzi, whose torrid affair with a married woman ended in murder. The Condemned is hosted by Sonny Hernandez and Josh McDonald. Stories written by Jonathan Croyle and Steve Carlick with editing assistance from Sonia Duntley. Recorded and produced by Katrina Tullick. Thank you for listening to The Condemned. Want more? Check out Syracuse.com slash condemned to see historical images, videos, and additional stories connected to the electric chair. If you like what you're hearing, please share this podcast with your friends and rate and review our series as it helps new listeners find us. We really appreciate it. This is a Syracuse.com production.